Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest won the Pulitzer Prize in history for No Ordinary Times. She's the author of Wait Till Next Year, Fitzgerald and the Kennedys, Lyndon Johnson and the American Dream. She's out here from Massachusetts uh, to talk about her new book called the called Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. Will you please welcome Doris Kearns Goodwin. It was so interesting to read this and, and get a sense that Abraham Lincoln was able to take these people who'd been his political rivals and incorporate them into his cabinet in a way to lead this country into greater and more imaginative things. I mean, it really was an unprecedented act at the time. I mean, here's this guy. He's only a single-term congressman, two failed races for the Senate, only one year of formal schooling. And these other guys were governors, senators, PhDs, and not PhDs, but college graduates, and 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 much more celebrated than he. But I think he decided that he needed the strongest people in the country on his side. And he also, I think, adopted an old Lyndon Johnson maxim that it's better to have your enemies inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. <laughs> and LBJ would told you that himself, too. LBJ did tell me that yeah. himself. <laughs> I had the extraordinary experience of knowing him at the end of his life when he was so vulnerable and opened up to me in ways he never would have if I had known him at the height of his power. He was a great, colorful character. I bet. What, what, what did, from that time that you were, you were staying in Texas and, and learning and writing about him uh, informed you about Abraham Lincoln that, that helped understand the, the presidency? You know, I think what it did was watching Lyndon Johnson so sad in those last years and being able to see him as a private person as well as a public figure, I think it really propelled me to want, in all my books after that, to try and figure out who these people were with their families, with their childrens, and with their, with their whole sense of person and not just their policymaking on the White House level. So I tried to bring that understanding to both Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt and now to these characters. Well, it was fascinating, too, to learn about people that you know, show up, for instance, on very large enumerated bills. For instance, Salmon Chase. Well, he was a character. He's the one that I had the hardest time with because there are times I was so mad at him I wanted to wring his neck. I mean, he was brought in by Lincoln to be his Secretary of Treasury. And he had been a very good governor and senator from Ohio, but he had a relentless drive for the presidency. And he was never happy until he reached it. So he actually tried to run against Lincoln. Part of it, I think, was that he had such a sad private life. I mean, death just stalked these people over and over again. He had three wives who died in their 20s and then never married again, had a daughter that he loved so much that he groomed her to be his first lady. And she became the most beautiful woman of her age. Mary Lincoln hated her. There was such rivalry between the two. But then he tried to run against Lincoln in, in, in 1864. And amazingly, Lincoln then knew everything he was doing but didn't kick him out of his office. And he, people would go to him, don't you know what he's doing? I know meaner things that he's doing about me than any of you do. But as long as he's doing his job here, helping me, helping the country, I'm going to keep him on. I mean, that kind of magnanimity is quite rare in public life. There were a couple of people uh, who, who, uh, uh, that, that Lincoln uh, lost to who, who remembered his magnanimity so much that they became devoted uh, supporters of him uh, later on. This, this quality of forgiveness, of acceptance, seems remarkable given what we've seen in recent political administrations. And that, and that nevertheless, going through a, a terrific divisive struggle, he was able to hold these people together so much so that um, on his deathbed, they were weeping. <laughs> 
Absolutely. I mean, the perfect example of that is Stanton. Stanton and Lincoln had been legal rivals in the 1850s, and Stanton actually was a celebrated lawyer at the time. Everybody in the nation knew who he was. Lincoln was simply a lawyer in Illinois. They were thrown together on a big patent case that was supposed to be tried in Illinois, so they needed somebody, Stanton thought, of counsel in Illinois because he came from Ohio. But then the case got transferred. They chose Lincoln without seeing him. The case got transferred to Ohio, so they didn't need Lincoln anymore, but they forgot to tell him. <laughs> so he had worked all summer on his brief. He was so excited when he got to Ohio to meet Stanton. And he goes up to him and is typically, Lincoln was so affable, so good-natured. Let's go up to the courthouse in a gang, he said. And evidently, Stanton took one look at Lincoln's disheveled appearance, and his trousers were always up too high, and his socks were sticking out. And he said to his partner, we've got to get rid of this long-armed ape. He will hurt our case. They never opened the brief. They never allowed him to sit with him in the boarding house. It was so humiliating for Lincoln that he never even wanted to go back to Cincinnati again. And then incredibly, six years later, when he needs a new Secretary of War, everybody says, Stanton's the man for the job. He's passionate. He's outbursting. Um, he may be tough on his subordinates, but he's brilliant. And Lincoln appoints him to that job, forgetting that hurt of six years earlier. And they become great friends. And Stanton evidently comes to love him more than anyone outside his family. I don't know how many people could do that. The, the general tenor of politics today is, screw the guy who hurt you. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. And we uh, that uh, sort of Rovian sort of view of the world. <laughs> there was... Um, There were, but there was something fascinating about the the account of of, of Lincoln's nomination to of this of this new party, this new Republican Party, uh, and and how he uh, many people saw it as this was a, this was a chance to vote against William Seward, who had made many enemies, and and Lincoln was an alternative. Yet you make the case also that it was very astute politics on Lincoln's part. But one of the interesting things was that a lot of his supporters printed up duplicate admission tickets to get into the convention. No, it's a great thing. Lincoln actually was a very shrewd politician. I mean, starting with the fact that when the Republican National Committee met prior to the convention to determine which state the convention should be in, Seward, the governor and senator from New York, wanted New York. Chase wanted Ohio. Bates, who becomes his attorney general but was one of the rivals then, wanted Missouri. So Lincoln said to his people, I think it would be a good idea if you could get it to Chicago. So they said, well, you know, there's no real front runner in Chicago. What about a compromise case, Chicago? Once it's in Chicago, he then has all the railroads give discounted fares to the people so he can bring many people to the city. And then on the last day of the convention, Seward's people are out celebrating on the street in a massive parade. And meanwhile, Lincoln has, has had his people print duplicate ballots, so he fills the hall with his guys. And so not, not ballots, and, but tickets. I mean, not ballots. Oh, yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> that would be Rovian. <laughs> No, just tickets so they could yell when his name was said. Yay, Lincoln! Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and there was a a, a f lung power was essential in those days. That's what they said. I mean, somehow the momentum could be felt. I mean, they said that they would scream like wild horses, like railroad. I mean, it's unbelievable the screaming they did in those days. But, you know, politics was the abiding passion of the country then. I mean, to the debates that Lincoln had with Stephen Douglas, 10,000 people would come because they wanted to listen to a four-hour talk. I mean, it's almost impossible to imagine today. But people have said that politics then had the, the hold on the American people like sports does for us today. Even when he was doing the debates, people would yell, hit him again, hit him again, harder, just like we do in football. Do the wave. Do the wave. <laughs> the, uh, the war, the Civil War, wrenching time uh, for this country. Uh, Lincoln was able to make decisions to choose uh, a general. He'd make battlefield visits. Uh, he, he participated 
with a sorrow about this war uh, that that I think uh, you know probably FDR did and and uh, and Truman to some degree uh, and most certainly LBJ you know from what we read now um, I mean that that there was an uh, there was an empathy about what was going on that. I don't get a feeling for nowadays. It, it seems that there was a greater recognition of mortality in some way. Oh, I think there's no question. I mean, I think Lincoln's most profound quality was a remarkable empathy, even long before the war. He somehow was able to absorb what other people were feeling and thinking. And even he understood what the South was feeling and thinking while he was a Northern leader. And when those lives were lost on the battlefield, his immediate impulse was to go to the front. I mean, he wasn't going to hide the bodies. He wasn't going to stay away from it. He went more than a dozen times to the active battlefront. And somehow when he walked among the soldiers, he could buoy their spirits again. He visited the wounded in the hospital. And he went down there and relaxed with them, telling them stories. I mean, he was the most gifted storyteller that I've ever encountered in public life. He had the most remarkable sense of humor. So he would tell one of his wonderful, crude, funny stories to the soldiers who would then tell it a hundredfold to everybody else. And they'd go away knowing that they were in the presence of somebody remarkable. And then he'd come back feeling better because they had bolstered his spirits. There's a, a photograph in here of, of, uh, of people gathering at a house to hear Lincoln's stories. It looks like there's a huge crowd outside. What, what kind oh, yeah. of parties were these? No, well, what happened is when he was on the legal circuit, um, they would travel from courthouse to courthouse as a whole gang, the lawyers, the judges, the bailiffs, the prisoners, <laughs> the sheriffs, and everybody who knew that Lincoln was in a particular courthouse, they would come from miles around to listen to him tell stories. And the stories are not quite what you might expect from our marble monument. That's what I loved about them. I mean, in fact, for example, one of his stories had to do with the fact that there was a Revolutionary War guy many years after the Revolution, who was collecting relics from the war. So he's like 80 years old, but anything that had to do with the Revolutionary War, he's obsessed about. So he found an old woman who was 90, who evidently had a dress that she had worn when she was 16 during the war. So he knocks on her door and he says, can I please see the dress? And she's a rather practical old lady, Lincoln said. So she brings it down from the attic and she hands it to him and then he kisses it. He's so exciting. She said, stranger, I don't know what's the matter with you, but if you want to kiss something old, kiss my ass. It's 16 years older than that dress. <laughs> You know, <laughs> so somehow, and, and there are even more wild stories than that that I might not be able to tell on the radio. <laughs> the, the book is a good place to do that. And, and I, th there, have been so many, th there have been so many books written about Lincoln, uh, of, you know, small to large to grand stories, uh, you know, Carl Sandburg's great works and everything. I mean, that, that this view, I mean, is it, was, was writing this history one of reframing a, a way of looking at, at Lincoln, or did you come across new information, new, new uh, personal papers that gave you some illumination? I mean, to be honest, when I started, I didn't know what the angle would be. I just knew that I wanted to study Lincoln. You know, after Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, it's hard to go down to Millard Fillmore or Franklin Pierce, <laughs> so Lincoln was like the Moby Dick for a historian. <laughs> And it took me a couple years to come up with the angle, but what was wonderful is once I realized that I wanted to tell the story of these cabinet guys who had been his rivals, they all, unlike Lincoln, kept diaries, and they wrote thousands of letters to their families. And those insights into Lincoln hadn't been used always in the Lincoln biographies. For example, in the Seward family alone, there were 5,000 letters on, between the, the wife and the children and the husband. And the daughter, Fanny, when she was 16 years old, decided she wanted to be a writer. And she kept a dazzlingly wonderful diary from the time she was 16 to 21 when the Civil War came to an end and when she died of tuberculosis. That diary's fantastic. Chase kept a diary. Every night he would write in his diary. He didn't have many other 
pleasures in life because he thought drinking and smoking and novels and theater were all a, a sinful thing. He was a very religious character, but he wrote in this diary every night from the time he was 20 till days before he died. Bates, who had 17 children eventually. He had some time, however... Well, his, 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 his wife had 17. <laughs> I'm glad you keep correcting me. I'm really screwed. No, up. it was just... You know. Yes, indeed, the wife had amazing. Which is amazing. Which is amazing. But, but, but also it, it talks about the, the, the difficulty, and because many of the other wives were, were women who died in their 20s, sometimes of childbirth-related uh, screw-ups or of uh, 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 tuberculosis. No, it's true. I mean, death just went through all these families, and so many of them did bury their children. And Stanton actually, too, kept some wonderful letters that I was able to use. His wife died. And he was so devastated when she died that he had a two-year-old child at the time, and he wrote a 78-page letter to that child so that he would know the mother that otherwise he might not otherwise know. So all of these sources, you know, I worry about historians 100 years from now. They'll have so much more stuff that we have, but they won't have these intimate letters. When people wrote then, they really expressed their feelings, their anger, their jealousy in raw emotion, and there's nothing better than a handwritten entry in a diary or a letter. So those sources became a treasure trove for me. When Seward lost the nomination to Lincoln, something he thought he'd have uh, in a, in a walkaway, he was very gracious. I mean, and and uh, and shocked. But the letters reveal that in fact he went around the house stomping and swearing and cursing. And oh, actually, and, I mean, he felt like his life was over. He said he sometimes felt like he had died, and everybody was already writing his obituary, even though he was still alive. But amazingly, when Lincoln makes him Secretary of State. He not only accepts, at first he thinks he'll control Lincoln and Lincoln will be a figurehead, but he soon comes to understand Lincoln's strength. And they become not only allies, not only partners, but great friends. I mean, Lincoln loved going over to his house, putting his legs up. Seward lived at Lafayette Park right across from the White House. And Seward was a, much like a Churchillian character. He drank a lot, he smoked a lot, he swore a lot. And Lincoln loved telling stories to him, listening to him. And they became such good friends that they were really, I think it's the most interesting relationship in this whole saga. And startlingly, uh, having known so much about Lincoln's assassination, I d did not know that, in fact, that there was a plot to assassinate uh, Seward that night as well. And, in fact, he suffered a terrible knife attack on his, on his cheek, and his son, Freddie, was bashed over the head by the assassin. And it was a plot to take out uh, Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, and Seward, the Secretary of State, who would become the Mark Antony to what they saw was Lincoln's Julius Caesar. Remarkable uh, to think about that in these. Yeah, I don't think I had fully absorbed it either. I must have known it at some level, hopefully, when I was teaching the presidency many years ago, but somehow it never had gotten into my heart. And it was, as you say, they were going to kill Andrew Johnson, but luckily the guy got drunk, so he never did get to his task. But in Seward's house, they left a bloody massacre. Six people knifed or hit over the head, brains exposed. And Seward only lived because he plunged the knife so deep into his face that his cheek was torn off, but he missed the um, jugular vein. And also he'd been in an accident and had a metal plate wired up. Wired up that? That's right. He was very lucky. You, you taught the presidency? I did, many years. What would you many teach years. our current president? Oh, <laughs> Well, I, better, better than me teaching, I would teach him what Lincoln did. For example, when Lincoln made a mistake, he had no problem acknowledging the error instantly. <laughs> um, when, when somebody in his administration um, made a mistake, he shouldered the responsibility for the blame rather than looking for a scapegoat. When something good went on, he shared credit. And most importantly, he understood that if you're going to send people into battle, that you have to give the country an understanding of why they're going. And through those extraordinary speeches and through those wonderful letters that he wrote, public letters, he gave a meaning to that war so that those people knew they were not dying in vain. That is something that President Bush has not yet done. Historian Doris Kearns Goodwin.
And uh, the remarkable book is called Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln, published by Simon & Schuster. Thank you very much for coming. You're so welcome. What a pleasure. Thank you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.